0: the TMQ Podcast, podcasting from inside of Coa Promotion Studios 1 in Wichita, Kansas, and going out to the entire world. I am your host, El Gran Tommy Martinez. It's another fantastic episode, so sit back as you listen and enjoy what I have for you. Always rocking, baby, because this is what it's all about. Yes, I'm back. Season one, episode number three, and happy 2024. Hoping you had a great Christmas holiday. I just got back from Puerto Rico. Actually, earlier this month. You know, I'm good. I got back. I enjoyed the sun. I enjoyed the fun. Had a great time with my family and friends. When we returned, there were some days that were like below negative two. That's nuts. But I got back just in time. I didn't get delayed or anything like that. So I'm going to call that a success. And without any further delay, how about we just jump right into it? Didn't get tail, but you didn't get mail. Yeah, it's email time. Finally got a few emails that are worth mentioning here on the podcast, on the TMQ podcast. Metallica Sunday School Lesson. That was the title of the email. And it comes from this dude called Willie. (laughs) He writes, Tommy, when I listened to your first podcast that you spoke about Metallica and their song Creeping Death, I thought about it while I was at church. I felt so conflicted. Then he goes on to this bullshit about how uh, sacrilegious I am, yada, yada, yada. And I'm not going to read the rest of this shit. Well, Mr. Willie, thank you. Number one for the email. Number two for judging me. Wait a minute, Was that? my? I think there's somebody at my front door, but eh, my wife's here. She can take care of it. It's probably Jehovah's Witnesses anyway. Number three, you can take the information that I provided and uh, make it uh, whatever you want to make it. Metallica's interpretation of a biblical recount is no different than anybody else's. Let's be honest for a minute. We all know the Old Testament of the Bible has a lot of stories about war and death and things of this nature, I'm going to go a little further here and say that story about the plagues that God thrusted upon Egypt, especially that one about killing their firstborn sons, is not allegory. By all historical accounts, that shit happened. Do you want them to sugarcoat that? Who's to say somebody listening to that Metallica song hears that and shits their pants and goes running to the church and converts? God works in mysterious ways. Listen, Willie. If I were you, I'd go and confess. That's all I'm saying. Didn't get tailed, but you didn't yeah, man. Thanks for that email. And uh, oh, and another thing. Go ahead and uh, ask for forgiveness for being such a judgmental guy. It's time to learn about some rock history. <laughs> The pages of history.com, today in history.com, and ClassicBands.com. And this is bad company from back in 1974. Company, always on the run. Destiny. That I die, baby. Yeah. Bad company. One of my favorite bands. Don't get to speak a lot about bad company here. I don't know why. I'd like to say that I believe we uh did Rocksteady in lyrics that'll blow your mind about maybe maybe two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. You might want to check that podcast out. It was pretty good. One of my favorite songs from Bad Company is Rocksteady. But, you know, obviously, uh, this first album, Bad Company, their eponymous debut album was just absolutely out of this world. One of the first supergroups that really make a really huge impact. Managed by Zeppelin's own Peter Grant, also the first act to be signed to Led Zeppelin's Swan Song Records label. But let's go ahead and get this out of the way. There's so much to be said about Bad Company. January the 18th of 1974, former members of Free, Mott the Hoople and King Crimson, Form Bad Company, those were Paul Rogers, Simon Kirk, Mick Ralph, and Bob Burrell. In other words, you have the singer and the drummer from Free, you have the guitarist from the Hoople, and the bass player from King Crimson, all recognized and respected groups all on their own. So they're coming in from a great body of work. They're signed to Zeppelin's label and they blast out of the gate with this incredible record called Bad Company. In my opinion, the powerhouse of this group definitely is Paul Rogers. Paul Rogers has such a distinctive voice. He's very bluesy. He could carry on this sort of mystical tune with his voice. His voice alone is an instrument. Even though on this album, he played rhythm and acoustic guitars, the piano and the tambourine. People knew Paul Rogers from free. Now, if you know a little bit about the 70s rock and roll, you've heard this song a bazillion times, which is, all right now. It was a big hit, still on heavy rotation on rock radio, and the lesser-known song which was called Ride the Pony. That song right there will give you a great demonstration of what I'm talking about when I say that Mr. Paul Rogers is a great bluesy singer. He's the type of singer that'll carry... Not only the song and its lyrics, he'll interpret the story for you. He'll give you that imagery. Just like this song that I played at the beginning of this segment, uh, Bad Company. And I am praising Paul Rogers, not taking away the outstanding job. The rhythm section provides to all these songs and the lead guitar work. When Simon Kirk hits that drum, it's so crisp, it's so clear. You could almost feel that stick touching that skin. How many times have you caught yourself? air drumming to bad company in the car especially that part that goes into the bridge here let me uh let me uh find that part real quick on uh actually the record version of uh bad company so we're gonna write bad company all right bad company and the first one that's gonna come up is all right hold on hold, on, hold on. Okay, this is it let me you stop it again let's do it again okay here we go cool so this is right before the standard chorus it's perfect timing it's right before everything blows up it goes into a small bridge and then it goes into the guitar song. solo to that a thousand times on your car steering wheel. Yeah, a million times as you were driving down the highway, listening to classic rock. That period of music was a kind of a strange era for rock and roll. You're coming off the folky stuff, you're coming off of the hippie stuff from the 70s, and all of a sudden you have these bands like the Allman Brothers, the Marshall Tucker Band, of course Free, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Neil Young, all kinds of storytelling kind of songs, groups that create that kind of uh, movie in your head. And these guys from Swanson Swan Records have this great idea to bring these other guys together from all these other groups and make bad company. And here's a quick fact what I want to leave you with Leonard Skinner, Stevie Van Zant, <laughs> wait a minute, hold up, excuse me, Ronnie Van Zant, I'm confusing my Van Zants here. In fact, was a great Allman Brothers fan. And I saw this in the documentary not too long ago. But he modeled a lot of his singing, a lot of his style, a lot of his storytelling kind of music and the way he would write from Paul Rogers. He was a huge Paul Rogers fan. See, I always thought he was kind of like a, you know, a junior Greg Allman. When in fact, he was following a guy that he was a big fan of. And the way he did things, which was Mr. Paul Rogers. That's that's a pretty cool story. Being that the guys from Leonard Skinnerd, especially Ronnie Van Zant, were a bunch of rednecks from Florida, and Mr. Paul Rogers was an Englishman who just so happened to love American blues. And before you send me a stupid email about me calling a Leonard Skinnerd rednecks, uh, I'm just quoting what they call themselves. Anyway, yeah, Bad Company. Check them out. I want you to say, This is not cool. the Back from 1984 from Stockholm. This is some live recording that was taken of them back in the early Motley younger years. Wow. When the hijinks and the hunger for fame and recognition was on high. Before polished production, nice. When you could go to a rock show and not have it timed or perfect or synchronized with whatever the production team was telling them what to do. Oh, wow. That's actually my Motley Crue. I actually saw Motley Crue live back in February of 1984. I've told this story about a million times because I just won't forget it ever. They opened up for Ozzy. Wow, yeah. January 17th, 1981, the birth of Motley Crue. And what better way to have started off but with one of their greatest songs, at least the one that I really love, which is Live Wire. Off of their novice album, Too Fast for Love. I think I still have a cassette tape of that. We've busted out Motley Crue numerous times here, and I think we're more upset than anything that Motley Crue is just kind of died out this motley version that i love so much just doesn't exist no more you know in modern times i get it the shows have to be more polished etc etc with age obviously things change and you want to give the public these almost perfect shows because these things are super expensive but you know honestly sometimes you you compromise your artistic integrity And you let down a lot of fans. I, for one, don't mind the fuck-ups on shows. It should be expected, I think, if you practice any kind of art form, be it painting, whatever it may be, and in this case, playing instruments, that's super hard to get to the professional level of proficiency that you need to go out there and do a show. And in all fairness to Motley Crue, it's not just them. There's a lot of acts out there that are doing the same thing. It kind of stinks. We're freaking human beings. Let me get off my soapbox. Motley Crue. January the 17th of 1981, heavy metal history was made when bass guitarist Nikki Sixx left the band London to begin rehearsals with drummer Tommy Lee and singer-guitarist Greg Leon effectively marking the beginning of Motley Crue. While Leon would depart within months, the group eventually cemented their legendary lineup with vocalist Vince Neil and guitarist Mick Mars. Fame would be their next stop as they went on to be one of the most successful bands of their genre. I agree with that. I obviously grew up in the heyday of 1980s quote-unquote heavy metal. I actually lived that shit where if you were gonna go to a show, you usually buy general admission tickets because that was the ticket that was available. Not only that, you'd have to get up really early that day if you wanted to get a great seat within the stadium because you and your buddies were broke. We weren't VIPs, any of that stuff. But you know, again, I mean, I was in the army, I was a really young guy and we had a great time doing that. We just hang out all day as close to the doors as we could. You'd wait all day. And when they'd open those doors, I don't know, five, six o'clock, you're doing the mad dash. I tried to stay away from the front as much as I could. I usually would go on to the first side uh, seats as close to the front as I could get. Usually stage right. You know, from that vantage point, you could see the band, the fan turmoil, the fights, the chicks that flash their boobies, all those good things. A lot of times it was two opening acts. And that's how I got to see Motley Crue for the first time. Then later on, I don't want to say about uh, a couple of years later, maybe four or five years later, I saw them as a main act. The bigger show, a lot of their cemented antics, their classical stuff like Tommy Lee's Flying Drums, which is a staple of that show. And a slew of great rock and roll songs. I even saw them in St. Louis when they did the Dr. Feelgood record from start to finish. That was, I want to say, the uh, late first decade of the 2000s. I was so blown away by this <laughs> huge, I mean, gigantic bass drum that Tommy Lee had. That was super cool. And I think the time after that was when they were touring with Kiss back when Kiss did that special show for veterans at Bristol, Virginia. And by then... Tommy Lee's doing the rock and roll roller coaster, which in my opinion, that rock and roll roller coaster as he drums, rolling around on this thing upside down, sideways, it's just one of the greatest visuals when it comes to performing. It's really mind blowing. A couple of years later, I retire from the army as a gift. I get two tickets to see him here in Wichita at the interest bank. Oh my gosh. And I went with Adam. You remember the story. And uh, wow, were we disappointed. And I'm telling you all this, I guess, to give you a fan's perspective of, uh, you know, a great group. I love Motley Crue. I really do. I love their songs. I love the, the energy that they projected on stage live. You know, the attitude and all that bad boy shit I really didn't care about. That kind of shit is for the chicks and insecure guys that vicariously live through that. But geez, I just loved the way these guys rocked out. And I know Rocked Out is a cliche, but if you were going to apply it, you definitely would apply it to the early Motley crew. They were touring on the strength of that first album of theirs, Too Fast for Love, which had, again, Live Wire, Merry Go Round. Stick to Your Guns, Public Enemy Number One, Piece of Your Action, Come On and Dance, Take Me to the Top, Starry Eyes, Too Fast for Love, I know, internally, me, subconsciously, I can tell you what song that is in the first couple of seconds. I don't even think I even need a couple of seconds. The title track alone. Here, here, let me, uh, (laughs) let me, let me punch that up real quick since it's in my brain. There you go. Yeah. Woo. That's pretty great rock and roll. Yeah, Molly Crew. Love them or hate them. Shit. They're still a great band and a great reminder of, uh, That awesome music we had in the 1980s. This weekend, oh yeah, kiss. Be there, trying to grab a hold. She thought she knew me, but she didn't know that I was sad and wanted her to go. Hell, with that lady. I laid it. No need to drive. This is my body. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh! Oh, man. Kisses Parasite. Nice. I got so excited there. I almost said Paradise. Off of 1974 is hotter than hell. A lot of things are not said about this record. Has a super cool tune on there. Got to Choose and Coming Home. Yeah, I love that record. Uh, What else is on there? Let Me Go Rock and Roll. Obviously Hotter Than Hell. And then it has that Gene Simmons ballad Going Blind, which was kind of weird. Actually a little creepy. It was talking about minors there. As in underage minors, which would not fly in 2024. But yeah, Gene Simmons, singer of... Parasite. And by the way, a song he did not write. It was written by Paul Daniel, Ace Frehley, the original guitarist of KISS. I'm going to write a note. Someday I'm going to review this album. There's also some really cool acoustic versions on their uh, MTV Unplugged album, where they revisited a lot of these uh, tunes off of Hard Than Hell. Okay, blabbermouth.net. Hmm, This is interesting. On 17 January 2024, Blabbermouth posted in an article that Kiss bassist Gene Simmons will perform with his solo band, the Gene Simmons Band, of course, on Friday, April the 26th, at the Brazilian edition of the Summer Breeze Festival in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Say what? You heard me. That's right. The same Gene Simmons that was all teary-eyed back at the Madison Square Garden when the Kiss Farewell tour ended. The real question here is, who's surprised? And uh, just for those people out there that are not that attuned to this kind of news or who are going to start saying immediately that this is some ploy to make more money, which I never doubt. I mean, come on, it's Gene Simmons. Let's give him... The benefit of the doubt, and I'm gonna go with this angle not too long ago. Kirk Hammett of Metallica gave an interview speaking about not ever stopping from touring or playing. The guitar. And I'm going to go ahead and paraphrase what I remember from that interview, but it basically said, you don't stop doing something that you love out of the clear blue, or just because you decided to retire from a job that you had. That's a job playing rock and roll for these guys and all these stadiums, all these tours, even in the smaller clubs, they earn a living from it, but to do so, they must have some ability. They have a talent. It's a talent. It's inside of them. They have to express it somehow. You just don't shut that off. There's not a switch to turn off your innate God-given talent to express yourself. It doesn't work like that. You all know if you listen to me podcasting for a while, I'm a retired Army veteran. I served my nation for a very long time. That's in me. That was part of me during my entire adult life. The abilities, the skills that I learned just didn't get shut off. Translate this to any kind of employment or career What you learned to do there, what you did, isn't just going to go away. It's going to be with you until probably the day you die. That's why some people just lose their minds when they retire. And they had to find something to do. Fast forward to today, Gene Simmons is going to Brazil, even though he's retired from KISS. How cool is that? Now, this isn't something new that Gene just pulled out of his fire-breathing ass. Not too long ago, Gene was touring the nation with his vault tour, which was that $3,000 safe... He was selling that had some Gene Simmons material inside of it. He also toured the nation with a band that he had put together. And if you remember any kind of podcast lore coming from yours truly, you're going to remember my story about when I was on stage singing with Gene Simmons. I was at one of those shows. In this interview he had in Blabbermouth, he says that six years ago, doing these smaller concert halls, which hold a thousand or three thousand people means they get filled up with really diehard fans. And it goes on to say by the end of the show, he gets as many people as he can on stage to join in on the fun. So it just naturally progressed to them even headlining tours in Europe somewhere. You can check out the whole interview. I'm going to go ahead and post a link to the description of this podcast. It's pretty cool. He talks about other artists that are up there in age and they're touring and they could still do it because they're not running around on stage with 50 or 60 pounds worth of costume like uh, Kiss does it. Gene Simmons never disappoints when he's being interviewed. I'll tell you that much. Now, before I end this segment, I'm going to go ahead and mention something that happened while I was on vacation that so happens to be Kiss related. My nephew, Luigi, and his wife, Luisa, were both at this Three Kings Festival that I attended. And Luigi pulls out this picture that they found at this house that they bought in Pennsylvania. And we're renovating it. I think something like that. It doesn't matter. Back to the picture. I'm going to describe this picture as best I can. It's old. It's fuzzy. Maybe 1970s, 1980s. It has this chick with long hair laughing her head off. And she's in the arms of this guy who has the Kiss Demon makeup on, i.e. the makeup of Gene Simmons' demon persona. They were photographed in profile poses, i.e. they were sideways. Now the guy didn't have a shirt on and his tongue was sticking way out there, Gene Simmons style. Quick side note, I'm gonna try to upload it to the description of this podcast. I don't know how to do that, but I'm gonna give it a shot. Moving on, my nephew Luigi says, take a look and give me your opinion. Do you really think this is Gene Simmons? Now, when I saw this photograph, I got excited. I had a bunch of questions like, how long have you had this? Do you think I can get a copy? Then I calmed down. I looked at it for a bit and I really couldn't make it out. At least not there. There's a lot of noise. There was a bunch of people. So between my excitement over this discovery my nephew had and the confusion that was going on around me, I said, listen, I'll just take a copy of it. Find me a few Gene Simmons photographs online, at least profile wise. And I'll do a cross comparison, you know, more forensically. (laughs) I guess I didn't want my rock and roll credibility to be compromised, like on the spot. This was very important. If Luigi had this picture for that long and waiting to run into me, it was important to him too. (laughs) And to shorten this very long story, when I came back to Kansas and everything calmed down, I did just that. I downloaded a few sideway pictures of Gene Simmons, did the cross comparison, and came to the conclusion that it wasn't him. The tongue just wasn't long enough. (laughs) It was a really good Gene Simmons lookalike, though. And by the way, just so I could get a second opinion on my conclusion, I emailed the picture to Adam. And I'm going to read his response. Adam says, my guess is a KISS fan doing a little role play. If your opinion differs, I could be convinced you are the expert. Well, thanks, Adam. Shit, of course. I want to thank my nephew, Luigi, his wife, Luisa, and their family. want to shout out to him. Thanks for this opportunity. Gave me some cool content for this segment of the TMQ podcast. <laughs> Available on Spotify, Google Play, Apple podcast app, etc. And also to add a new title to my resume, Tommy Martinez, KISS Museum Curator. <laughs> yeah! Now it's time for... Hashtag! What the is? Today's hashtag, What the Frijoles, is coming from the New York Post. The headline, excessively farting passenger forces American Airlines' flight to turn around. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I first first read this, I thought it was like the Weekly World News or something like that. But it came from the New York Post. Actually, a friend of mine, Ricky, sent it to me. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Stop it already. We haven't got to the story yet. All right. On January the 24th, the New York Post reported an American Airlines plane was reportedly forced to return to the gate due to high wind. Wow. A disgruntled passenger smelly farts. The big stink over the flatulent flyer unfolded while a recent flight from Phoenix, Arizona to Austin, Texas was still still on the ground, according to a viral Reddit post. And they quote the Reddit post and it says, before most people had boarded, I asserted that this man was audibly disgruntled about something, maybe hungover, rough day, I don't know. But as soon as he sat down, he was grumbling about something under his breath, like fucking hell or something. I could only imagine what that something was. After the majority of the passengers had boarded, the man reportedly exclaimed, You thought that was rude? Well how about the smell? I think it was something like this. Oh man. (laughs) And proceeded to pass gas. It's a pretty wild story. Now, I'm going to make this short. There was some interchange amongst passengers against the frequent farter guy. <coughs> the uh, the flight attendants finally, you know, chime in and said to him, that I think that's enough. The plane goes back to the gate, which they tell this guy, hey, it's time for you to get off. He says he doesn't understand why. <laughs> and there's really no ending because the post reached out to American Airlines for comment and they haven't replied yet. <laughs> wow, this story reminded me of podcasts that I used to do with a friend not too long ago. Let's start wrapping this up and heading on home with The Rock News. It's The Rock News on the TMQ Podcast. News that matters to me. And I'm bringing it to you on this episode. My voice is kind of like uh, heading south on me. My wife's been sick. (coughs) <coughs> so let me wrap this up here real quick, Raw don't sound like a car whose muffler's about to go out. All right, the rock news. A lot's happened here in the past month, or at least since I've been gone from doing this podcast. Well, it's 2024. I assume that's a big shocker to many of you. And Ultimate Classic Rock reports that uh, these albums turned 35 in 2024. It's an article written by Matthew Wilkening, and it was on the 16th of January, and it says... 1989 was a big year for classic rock, with some of the genre's biggest stars closing out the decade on very high notes. 1989 was the year that I was married and have stayed married to the same beautiful lady all my life. That's not a very rock and roll thing to do, but I don't care about that shit. But 1989 absolutely was a great year for hard rock and rock in general. Motley Crue got clean and sober with Dr. Feelgood, Neil Young's Freedom, Aerosmith, they had Pump that year. I remember those. I, I remember actually Neil Young's. I, I love that song off of it, "No More." Even though Neil Young's uh, "Freedom" album is known more for "Keep on Rocking in the Free World," "No More" has this really funky bass groove. Let's check it out. it a shot. No more. See that's my problem. I run into these news stories and all of a sudden all these flashbacks start happening inside of my head. Especially shit that I thought was cool. You know shit 35 years ago that's nuts. Oh wow I just realized I'm gonna have uh, 35 years of blissful marriage to my beautiful wife this year. Makes this time even cooler. I have something in common with these records. (laughs) Okay, let's see some of these albums on this list. Let's hope I don't flashback too much. First one is Skid Row. Youth Gone Wild, "Agent in Life, and of course, I Remember You. That was a super power ballad. Warrants on here with their dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking rich album. Tom Petty, Full Moon Fever. Yeah, that was a great album. Oh wow, now here's a massive album right here. The cult, Sonic Temple. This album was actually produced by Bob Rock. That's why it's so massive. That album just captivated the entire band and Ian Asbury's voice on that song, on that signature song, Fire Woman. If you were a fan of the cult, which I think is an underrated band, but still their bluesy, balls to the wall sound. Wow, yeah. The Eagles' Don Henley and his solo project, The End of the Innocence is on this list. Nirvana's Bleach, was released in 1989. That's the uh, precursor to Nevermind. The Chili Peppers' Mother's Milk was released in 1989. Soundgarden's second album, Louder Than Love, that was released in 1989. So we could already start seeing the Seattle scene creeping in to what would set the stage for that grunge dominance in the early 90s. And here's a quick note on this album. This album actually served as inspiration to both Metallica and Guns N' Roses on some of their later songs. So this is kind of a really big deal album. And if you listen to Loud Love and you hear that eerie guitar, then that really cool bass groove along with the drums, you could see that's already what Soundgarden, was going to be providing in the future on many very cool albums and songs that they released under the leadership and guidance and songwriting of Chris Cornell and all his other various projects. Both Ace Fraley and Kiss released a record that year Ace with Trouble Walking and Kiss with Hot in the Shade. Rush released Presto. That was a good one for the fans. It was guitar heavy. Here's a huge one, White Snake, Slip of the Tongue. Excellent album. When it comes to, uh, let's say, pop metal, yeah, you go to those shows and you would see those chicks dancing and jumping and bouncing up and down. Nice. Anyway, there's some more here that I didn't mention for uh, the obvious reasons that I didn't think they were that good. Music, like all art forms, is subjective. What's good for me may not be good for you, right? So you can use that link on uh, the description. and Go to Ultimate Classic Rock and check out the list for yourself. Maybe drop me a note. Next up is uh, an article in Loudwire about moshing, and it's titled, How Fans Explain Moshing to People Who Don't Know What It Is, written by a Chad Childers. And it starts off with, how would you describe a mosh pit to the uninitiated? That was a question posed within the core thread on Reddit. Man, I'm going to have to get on this Reddit thing. And the answers provided were a mix of surprisingly insightful and humorous as well. Now, I'm going to assume some of the listeners of this podcast don't know what a mosh pit is. So before I go into some of these responses to this thread, I'm going to tell you what I've seen in person regarding mosh pits. It's a bunch of dudes, mainly white guys, running around in a circle bumping into each other. And when I say bumping, I'm being very light. They're actually trying to inflict some kind of damage to each other while they're listening to really fast thrashy kind of metal, which is usually the music that you mosh to. So that would be Slayer, Megadeth, Anthrax, a lot of that death metal from Europe. There's a lot of moshing there. Early Metallica, I say earlier because the last two Metallica shows that I went to, I didn't see a lot of mashing because mashing is also encouraged by the band as they play. It also usually occurs in what would be known as the pit. That's an area ground level to the stage. And if you need a visual for it, Imagine yourself, you're right above that crowd and you see a whirlpool of people just spinning around in a circle, punching each other, shoving each other, going crazy on each other as this really fast and super loud metal is playing. Now let's look at some of these responses. One says, haphazard dancing, where you forget yourself and happen to bump into people, also agreeable to this. It's in a circle, so participation is voluntary. If anyone falls, pick them up. Mind your head. Wow. That's courteous. Here's another response. Fake fighting for a group of rowdy friends. Like how me and my buds used to practice WWE moves on each other. And yet another response. Mosh pits are easy to explain. The music goes heavy and everyone spins in a circle, hopefully opening up a portal that will allow the devil to rise up through the concert himself and channel this energy into the band. Yeeach! The most interesting thing about this article is that mosh pit itself, the word, made itself into the Merriam-Webster dictionary. And Merriam-Webster says it's a noun. And it defines it as an area in front of the stage where very physical and rough dancing takes place at a rock concert. Hmm, dancing, they say. I thought dancing is where you spin around the ladies and you see them move in front of you to exotic beats, at least from my point of view. It also says that the word mosh pit was first used in 1988. And to close this out, Loudwire provides some examples of uh, mosh pits. Uh, They have the standard ones that we've described here already. I thought one of the coolest ones were where they show a bunch of kids with those pool noodles, the ones that, that you use to float in the pools, and they had them all up in the air as they were moshing around. But the best example was one where this guy was eating from a can of beans in the circle while he was moshing. Who knows? That might be the same guy Who was on that plane farting Maybe he thought he was still at that show At the mosh pit Who knows Oh there's my cue ladies and gentlemen You know what that means It's time to close out And end My podcast But not without Giving you some really cool music Created by yours truly, ladies and gentlemen. Here we go! I want to thank the new and growing fan base of this, my podcast. Yes, mine. I'll ask you not to let anyone tell you what you should think. Use those research skills and come out to your own conclusions. Don't listen to anyone's bullshit, not even mine's the tmq podcast streaming on your favorite platforms like apple podcast spotify google podcast rss podcast and many others subscribe and check it out when you hear that notification bell that it goes i am your host and good tommy martinez and you are listening to the best podcast the tmq podcast Hasta la próxima, baby, and until then, keep it rocking. Goa Promotions twenty twenty four.